Welcome, listeners. I'm a little bit behind schedule because I had to have a wisdom tooth pulled uh, last week. And boy, that is painful, painful, painful stuff going on in your head. But I did want for the festive period to drop some episodes that are a little bit longer. So today you have an episode on my favourite historical mystery, Princes in the Tower. And next week, there will be an episode coming out round about Hogmanay, which is on one of my other favourite subjects. So if you have any friends or family who are interested in the Prince in the Tower, please pass this episode on to them and let them know all about it. And otherwise, I hope you have a great festive period, whatever it is that you are celebrating and whoever you are with, even if that's just yourself. Enjoy a day in your chammies, stuffing your face with chocolate. And uh, I hope you all have a great time. You are listening to True Crime Fiction, feeding your addiction to the best of the written and the spoken word in crime. If you would like to support the podcast, you can do so for as little as £1 at patreon.com slash truecrimefiction. There is a tug at the heart of every mystery, something that pulls us closer into it, which makes us want to examine it in more detail. As humans, we seek to explore, but more importantly, we also need to understand, to be humble about our lack of knowledge when facing the unknown, because that is what can open up new avenues and ways of thinking and being. Many of us, when faced with that lack of knowledge, try desperately to fill it. Sometimes it is easily filled with our own assumptions and biases. Other times we need specialists who have specific knowledge to fill it for us. This is true with all mysteries, whether it is the mystery at the heart of the universe, like black holes and the Big Bang, or the far more mundane crime. There are lots of happenings that vie for the title of the biggest mystery in true crime. Who was Jack the Ripper is probably on the top of many people's lists. Several of these mysteries have been covered by true crime fiction, including the mystery of Lord Lucan's disappearance after murdering his children's nanny after apparently mistaking her for his wife, and the infamous Scottish serial killer to Bible John, and the more modern Irish vanishing triangle, as well as several interesting real-life locked room mysteries. What is probably the most enduring, the most interesting of all the mysteries, especially if you live in Britain or are fascinated by British medieval history, is that of the princes in the tower. The princes referred to are Edward and Richard, the son of Edward IV, a Plantagenet king from the House of York, towards the end of the period of history known as the Wars of the Roses. The House of York, the White Rose, and the House of Lancaster, the Red Rose, both had claims to the throne of England. 
This may not have been a problem if Henry VI, who was the Lancastrian king, had been a bit more of what we expect from a medieval king, strong, unequivocal, a warrior. Instead, he probably would have been more suited to the life of a monk. He was very religious and unfortunately he had fragile mental health, which saw him unable to rule for extended periods of time while in a catatonic state. His feisty wife, Margaret of Anjou, did attempt to rule in her husband's stead, as was customary in her France, but in England things were way more misogynistic and the nobility bridled at taking instruction from a woman. Enter the man who was to become Edward IV, and after a lot of toing and froing and many, many battles, the House of York is triumphant and he becomes King of England. The island of Britain was not unified at this time. The problem for his two sons, Edward and Richard, started when their father died in 1483. Edward was 12 and therefore was too young to start ruling by himself and his uncle Richard of York was placed as protector over them and to rule until Edward was old enough. Richard put his nephews in the Tower of London which at that point did not have the gruesome reputation it did in later years and soon they were never heard from again. Royal families are often meant to be a model, an example of what a perfect family should be, although the notion is rather cloying based on appearances rather than reality and therefore hard to live up to. Given the place they had in society, it was amazing that there was not more of an outcry in England at the time around this disappearance. It appears that there are only a few writings here and there where people in hushed tones talk about them or burst out crying. Many people pointed the finger at Uncle Richard, whose path to the throne was cleared by the death of his nephews. But he did not stay on it long as Henry Tudor, who is from the House of Lancaster, invaded and killed Richard in battle, taking the English crown for himself and marrying the prince's sister, Elizabeth of York. If this was a fairy tale, then everybody would live happily ever after. But it's not. It is history. Henry Tudor lived through constant plots to dethrone him. Perkin Warbeck. Lambert Simnel and others were all said to have been brought forward by the scheming Yorks to try and win back the throne, but they never managed. All through his reign, the mystery of what had happened to the two young princes continued and consensus around Richard III grew, finding expression in the plays of Shakespeare, which gave us the hunchback with the withered arm, playing an almost pantomime-like villain. There had, however, always been people who had not fully agreed with Richard killing his nephews. Many of the accounts of the time showed him to be progressive and kind in his treatment of those who were beneath him and visitors to his court being impressed with him as a man and as a king. Everyone who enters true crime fandom, though, will be aware that things are not always as they seem. 
One well-known true crime podcast has as one of its life rules, you can never truly know anyone. A saying I subscribe to mainly because I think very often people don't even know themselves as well as they think they do. We're so often mysterious to ourselves, with the only thing unraveling that mystery being time and reflection, which is not to say we would all be capable of killing our nibblings, but rather that we never are really fully formed. There is always something we are in the process of becoming or going through, and we never know what is going to come down the road next to change and shape us and our understanding of the world around us. The mystery of the princes in the tower carried on throughout the years, and many have tried to solve it. There is the incredibly popular and one of my favourite historical mystery books, The Daughter of Time by Dorothy L. Sayers, in which her inspector Grant, suffering a broken leg in a police chase, decides to investigate the mystery from his hospital bed and comes out firmly in favour of Richard not being a murderer. It is at the point where I read The Daughter of Time that I became convinced that Richard was an underdog, horribly wronged by the Tudor dynasty and by history a view that has been held onto firmly by the Richard III Society, based, unsurprisingly, in York, a city which never fully capitulated to the Tudor dynasty. A few years later, my War of the Roses itch not having been properly scratched, I bought a biography of Richard, only to find my mind changed again. The Richard whose picture was painted there was a power-hungry and money-grabbing man, determined to follow in his father's footsteps, but who became more and more paranoid with time. In what is possibly one of the most audacious moves in history, he had his own mother-in-law declared dead when she was still alive so he could gain her lands, condemning her to be a kind of living ghost. No matter how someone cares for subordinates or piety, it is pretty hard to explain that one away. Whatever Richard you subscribe to, he could have killed. He grew up with his family at the centre of a civil war and generations of his class being marred with constant violence and scheming. This was an age when being able to succeed in combat was incredibly important and despite the scoliosis which Richard had, he fought as hard as any of his peers. He and his brothers are recorded pulling knights on the opposing side out of sanctuary and killing them after the extrajudicial killing of Edward of Westminster, the young heir to Henry VI throne, who by all reports was a Geoffrey Baratheon in the making. The Richards in this biography could have gone further and murdered in cold blood. But could he have killed his nephews? After literally centuries of this argument going back and forth, something really amazing happened. Philippa Langley, a housewife from Edinburgh with no formal archaeological or historical training, found the missing body of Richard III buried under the R for reserved in a car park. This kind of discovery is incredibly rare and also a little uncanny. 
it didn't quite rewrite history, but it did start a process of illuminating a period which before had been mainly shadows and suppositions. It started changing people's understanding of who Richard was, and when a national newspaper called Richard a child killer on the day of his reburial, Philippa took exception to it. And as we all now know, Philippa is a single-minded woman. She has now released her book entitled Simply the Princes in the Tower, where she has basically crowdsourced researchers from archives all over Europe to find any and all information pertaining to the two princes or their family members. In the course of this research, people have spent years in archives and uncovered two crucial pieces of information. Information that leads Philippa to believe that Edward and Richard had survived and instead had been taken separately to mainland Europe and returned later as the Pretenders, Perkin Warbeck and Lambert Simnel. For those who are not familiar with the story, the reaction may be, so what? Some history was wrong. We discover new things all the time. What is the big deal? And it is understandable why some people might not see how Langley a woman who, when she first came to public attention, was portrayed as being maybe a little bit strange, over-emotional, slightly unhinged, has blown apart a piece of history that has been wondered over for centuries. Still, why is it such a big deal? Partly because there is no one to be really affected by this anymore by which I mean there are no family members left for whom it could be emotionally damaging. While we know the current royal family and others in Europe are connected to the princes in the tower and will no doubt feel something for the two boys, there's no fundamental emotional connection. There is no tearful mother to make appeals to TV cameras. There is no tell-all exclusive in the paper from Richard's mistresses. There is no way for it to fit into our modern understanding of how crime or tragedy unfolds. There are very few real-world consequences. The evidence from the time is partial in both senses of the word, of not being all there and also tending to favour one side or the other. One of the reasons for this is that Henry VII destroyed much of the evidence around the princes in the tower and Richard III that did not serve him. This brittleness is something that we can see snaking its way down the short-lived Tudor line with their bloodlust for killing everyone they suspected of treason and they saw treason round every corner. The Plantagenets, a much more confident and self-assured dynasty, tended to keep their enemies close, giving them enough economic reasons to not want to rebel, a policy that secured a certain amount of internal stability for the country. Given the sparring Ricardians and Tudorists have engaged in over the years, it is not surprising that Langley's latest discoveries have ruffled some feathers. Partially, it appears in historic academia, where there has been pressure for people to fall in line with the received wisdom of Richard the Killer, shutting down avenues of investigation and threatening careers. One wonders how powerful a king Henry Tudor was to still have so many loyal followers 
willing to dismiss, cajole and diminish on his behalf 500 years on, it's certainly a tremendous feat of narrative creation. Langley, however, has once again proved herself to be canny. She does not yet have definitive and complete proof that the boys were the pretenders who came back to the British Isles to reclaim the throne of England. The evidence is certainly compelling and will gather more troops to her side to find enough proof to rewrite our history books. We cannot, however, call it solved, as the Channel 4 documentary on the discoveries did. While there is a compelling case, there are still lots of loose ends, a lot of blank spots we cannot yet fill in. And this is the genius of Langley's book, to not fully solve the mystery, because we love the mystery. A mystery is something we can play with. With the lack of modern crime framing for this one, the lack of tearful appeals and tight-faced court appearances, it becomes something of a toy we can pick up and put down. The complexity of the relationships and the differences in how medieval people approach life means a considerable amount of time can be spent just trying to understand the political and familial landscape this mystery takes place in. To delve into this mystery can be a lifelong pursuit, given most of the answers lie in documents already destroyed, burnt, buried, hidden or forgotten. The emotiveness of the two children, innocent of any wrongdoing, wholly reliant on the adults around them, is another aspect which makes this mystery so compelling. One secret of parenthood that no one tells you beforehand is that you do not fall in love with just your own child. You fall in love with all children. Whenever you see a child in distress, peril or otherwise in a bad way, you immediately see your own child and in rescuing one, you rescue them all. I suspect for those who also did not have a sublime childhood, the open-hearted expression of distress that young children have often speaks directly to the child we still carry around with us if those hurt and wounds have not been tended to and healed. These three elements, the complexity, the emotiveness of children and the paucity of real-world consequences mean it is the perfect mystery to keep one occupied and while away idle hours. If Langley had waited to publish her book until she had all the evidence she wanted and unrefutable proof, she could have taken away the whole mystery in one fell swoop and deprived us of our intellectual toy. In a world where things are more certain, more knowable than ever, one in which solving things and giving answers, whether we're talking about crime or science, is on a pedestal, we are so rarely allowed to hold a mystery as being just what it is, to enjoy the endless possibilities that that blank space creates, to hold ourselves humble and acknowledge that we cannot know everything. If Langley had taken this from us, she would in some ways take something away that we fundamentally need. Because when we move into thinking we know everything, we move into arrogance, heartlessness and superiority. We need to be able to have mysteries to still find the childlike joy, wonder and beauty in creation. Langley, like a nurse, is slowly weaning us off this mystery. 
she is gently prizing us away and at the same time giving back to someone whose malignment was previously complete, their reputation utterly destroyed. She is doing the kind thing to Richard, but also what is right by his nephews. We can start to entertain the possibility that they did not die as small, frightened boys, but possibly on the battlefield as young men fighting for their birthright. It also rehabilitates their mother, Elizabeth Woodville, and Henry Tudor's mother, Margaret Beaufort. Both of them had at times been cast as scheming, wily plotters, and Woodville as a vixen. Woodville now is a more sympathetic figure, a mother tossed on the storms of fate to the highest height, and then thrown down to depths. A belief that Beaufort had killed the boys persisted, despite no evidence that she could have done this. As Langley reveals more and more to us, and it is likely that now the book has been published, you'll have a battalion ready to search the archives of Europe, we can have our questions answered. But her slow reveal, her steady approach... It also allows us time to find something else, something complex, emotive and low stakes, so we can cling on to the mystery, to the wonder of the world and feel how small we really are. You have been listening to True Crime Fiction, the podcast that is feeding your addiction to all things crime. You can find our website at true-crime-fiction.com, on Twitter at true underscore crime underscore fic, on Facebook and Instagram as True Crime Fiction. Please rate and review on the podcast app of your choice. Music is by Kitty Kitty Meow Meow.